immediately after that last song that we just sang, that's a great summary of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Again, that's Luke chapter 19. As you're turning there, I'll tell you just a quick, quick little story. Some of you know I've been traveling quite a bit recently for work and also some, some vacation and family trips. But on one of my recent flights, I was boarding a plane, and awkwardly, for those of you who have boarded planes, you know, you have to walk down that center aisle and kind of stare at the people who are already on the plane. And anyway, I was on the plane waiting for my turn to get to my seat, and the lady in front of me, she she couldn't have been more than five feet tall. I mean, probably less. She was very small. But yet, this lady had an enormous suitcase. I mean... I'm surprised that they actually let her on the plane with this thing because it was so big. So she gets to her seat and uh, she, you know, has to put the suitcase in the overhead bin. Well, amazingly, she has no problem hoisting this thing over her head. But her problem comes then in reaching the overhead bin. So she sets down her suitcase and then jumps up on the seat to go put it in. Well, at that point, I kind of snap out of just watching this scene unfold and like, hey, let's try to be a gentleman here. So I go to reach for her bag to to put it up for her. And she must have been a mother because she turned and she gave me a look that said, you touch this bag, so help me, I'll knock the ever-living snot out of you. So backed up. I was like, lesson learned. She got the bag in all by herself. Now, The point of that story is to not show how a four-foot-eight woman showed me up on an airplane. Rather, it's to get us to think about the trials that short or vertically challenged people have every day that oftentimes those of us who are a little bit taller take for granted. In our text from Luke today, we are going to encounter perhaps the most famous of all short people of the Bible, a man named Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus is not just fodder for a popular children's song, but it's a tremendously beautiful display of the gospel that sometimes we miss because we treat his story as just a children's story. So, let's look at the story of Zacchaeus together this morning. Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start with verse 1. The Word of God says that he, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Now just pause for a minute. To provide a little bit of context to what's happening here, in the book of Luke, early in the book, we see Jesus ministering in the region of Galilee, which if you look at a map of Israel is is in the north. At about chapter 13, it says that Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem, where he will eventually be crucified. Now, that journey that Jesus takes from Jerusalem takes six chapters in Luke. So he's on that journey all the way from Luke, the middle of Luke 13 to Luke 19, where we are today. And during that journey, as he's up north working his way south, we encounter many of the, the famous stories and passages that are only found in Luke and nowhere else, such as the parable of the prodigal son or this story of Zacchaeus, the rich man and Lazarus and others. But at this point, 
Jesus has almost completed his journey, and he's in Jericho, which is, if you look at a map, just about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It takes a lot longer than that to get there because of the mountains and hills, but it's, it's really close. And this is his last stop. So Jericho is ultimately, for this story, where we find Zacchaeus. So let's pick up in again in verse 2. It says that, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. All right, let's stop again. Because here, we learn two key facts about Zacchaeus. First, it says that he was a chief tax collector, and it also says that he was rich. Now, we'll talk about his occupation as a chief tax collector in a little bit, but first, let's just focus on the fact that he was rich and why that matters. It matters because of what happened and what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 18. In fact, go ahead and turn back a page because it's impossible to fully appreciate what Luke is doing here with the story of Zacchaeus without having a thorough understanding of what happened in Luke 18. Because in Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, we find the story of the rich young ruler, the wealthy young man who came to Jesus, who wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Now, we're not going to read this story, but to summarize, this man comes to Jesus wanting to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus replies, you know the commandments, obey your father and mother, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery. The young man was like, I've done all these since I was a boy. That's a pretty bold statement. But Jesus goes on and says, well, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Is that what the man did? No. It says that he went away sad. And why was that? Because, verse 23 of chapter 18, it says that he was extremely rich. It is then that Jesus, that Jesus says one of his most famous sayings, in that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying it's practically impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples recognized that. And they were like, well, then who can get into heaven? And Jesus then said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So to summarize, again, Luke 18, we see a rich man coming to Jesus, desiring eternal life, but leaves sad because he is not willing to forsake his riches, which is what is required of him to inherit eternal life. And Jesus then states that it's practically impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven and that it can only happen through the power of God. Okay, So that's the background that we need to know here for Zacchaeus. Now, as a side note, this concept of riches and money is actually a very common theme and and, and of how they hamper us from kingdom-minded living and from inheriting eternal life we find in this journey of Jesus from from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time, and that's not the point of the message today, to, to go into that, but I would encourage you all as homework this week to read that. Just read Luke 13 and 19, just with the purpose of seeing what Jesus has to say about riches. But in any case, back to Zacchaeus. Okay, It says 
that he was rich. So imagine you had never heard the story of it as a kid, and you are reading this story for the first time. You had just gone through Luke 18, and you read the account of the rich young ruler. You'd see that Zacchaeus was rich, and your first thought would probably be like, all right, well, here's the story of yet another rich guy who's not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that would further be compounded because you would see that he's not just rich, but he is a chief tax collector. See, tax collectors in biblical times were the worst. We think we have it bad today. You know, all this robbery and taxation going on, and, you know, I'm not saying it's not, but tax collectors in biblical times were deadly bad. One, they took your money, and Rome, the... You know, the rulers of the day, they didn't care how much of your money they took as long as Rome got what Rome was due. So tax collectors would often extort and charge way more than they needed to and pocket that extra money for themselves. So they were hated by the people because they were essentially stealing their money. Secondly, Jewish tax collectors were especially bad because they worked for the enemy. They worked for the Romans, the dreaded occupiers of your land. Okay, That's like, talk with Noah a little bit this morning. I'm an Ohio State fan. Sorry, Noah. Uh, they, they won last night, okay? I beat Penn State, which Noah's a fan of. But I'm not going to rub that in too much, Noah. <laughs> but uh, it, it would be like an Ohio State fan or an Ohio State alumni going to work in Michigan. Okay, That, that just doesn't happen. For those of you who don't follow sports or care about sports but are familiar with American history, it's like a Benedict Arnold, okay? You you turn on your own people and you're a traitor and you go work for the enemy, okay? Jewish tax collectors were seen by their fellow Jews as traitors and as enemies and betrayers of their own people and of even God himself. And as a chief tax collector, I mean, Zacchaeus... He was leading others in this practice of extortion and and betrayal. So as you're reading this passage, and you have all this background, you know it, you live it, you would say that, okay, Zacchaeus is rich, he's a chief tax collector, at least the rich young ruler was keeping the commandments. I mean, this guy Zacchaeus is not even trying. So you would be expecting then this story to somehow end up with Zacchaeus being rejected by Jesus or being or rejecting Jesus himself. So, let's continue on with the passage and see if our expectations here are realized. Verse 3, it says that, And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. Now, I don't know Greek yet. I haven't taken that class. And I don't know how that phrase is actually in the Greek. But I love the way it's translated here. Small in stature. Because that has to be the most politically correct and and respectful way of saying short that there is, right? But that was Zacchaeus' problem. He was short. And some of you can really relate to this, especially kids, right? You all can relate to this, being short. How many times have you been to a sporting event or a parade or at the zoo or a concert or something, and you have no clue what's going on? Because all you can see is the back sweat of the guy that's in front of you. Unless you find something to stand on, that guy leaves or somebody picks you up, you have no hope 
of knowing what's going on. Well, that Zacchaeus, he was short. And the temptation now is for us to continue on with this story and neglect what else verse 3 says about Zacchaeus. We get so focused on Zacchaeus' height that we forget to consider why his height, or lack thereof, was a hindrance. Verse 3 tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he could not because he was short. But consider that for a minute. He wanted to see Jesus. I mean, why do you think he wanted to see Jesus? He was in a position of power and authority. He had plenty of money, apparently. Well, the text doesn't tell us why he wanted to see Jesus, so we can only speculate. And I don't generally recommend speculation, but in this case, I want us to really get into the mind of Zacchaeus and feel what he feels. So perhaps he was curious as to what all this fuss was about. I mean, here was a man coming to his city who drew a huge crowd wherever he went, and not ten verses earlier in Luke chapter 18, we would see Zacchaeus, or we would see Jesus right outside the gates of Jericho, healing a man who was born blind. Okay, so he was probably interested in Jesus the celebrity. But I think there might also have been a part of his heart that was wholly unsatisfied with his life, despite being rich and powerful. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of Jesus' teachings regarding the possibility of salvation for tax collectors and sinners and his friendliness towards those very people had gone ahead of him towards Jericho. I mean, the teaching of the day from the Jewish religious leaders would have been that once you become a tax collector, you essentially forfeited your soul. There was no hope for you. I wonder if Zacchaeus was maybe hoping that Jesus could help him. We don't know. But what we do know is that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus so badly that he made a plan to do so. It says in verse 4, Zacchaeus ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, all right, hold up again, now that's a weird place to stop, but again, get in the mind of Zacchaeus, okay? You climbed up in a tree, You're there, you're waiting for Jesus to come. You see the crowd coming. And then you see Jesus. You're like, all right, my plan worked. Jesus is getting closer and closer. And then all of a sudden, he looks up and he sees you. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I think my plan might have worked a little bit too well. What's he going to do? Is he going to look away and pretend he didn't see me? Or, uh uh-oh, he's starting to open his mouth. What's he going to say? Is he going to ridicule me for what I'm doing? Is he going to condemn me for being a sinner? What's he going to say? Oh boy, here he says it. Continuing with verse 5, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Wait, what did he just say? Did he just invite himself over to my house? Talk about a plot twist, right? Here we have this rich chief tax collector whom we were positive was doomed. But when Jesus passes by, he doesn't ignore him. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't condemn him. 
He instead invites himself to this guy's house. Did not see that coming. What's going on? Well, it's obvious that Jesus had a plan. Because as much as Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus. Look at the language that Jesus uses. He doesn't just say, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. He says, hurry and come down. No time to waste. Why? Not because I want to go to your house, but because I must stay at your house today. Jesus was very intentional with his words, and we're going to look about look at why that, that matters in a minute. But let's first see how the story ends. Picking back up, verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, that is the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, having just read Luke 18, going if you were going through this, and the difficulties of the rich entering the kingdom of God, this is not the ending we were expecting to this story. So why is this story different in that a rich man receives salvation, much less a rich sinner? Well, it's because here in this story, we see three truths come together that result in Zacchaeus' salvation. Namely, we see the specific salvation of Jesus, we see the singular supremacy of Jesus, and we see the seeking strategy of Jesus. First, the specific salvation of Jesus. Now, if you're an astute scholar and you remembered everything that you read in Luke 18, you might have remembered that there was a bit of foreshadowing there about what could have happened in this story. Because though Jesus did say it's practically impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he followed that up by saying what is impossible with man is possible with God. So if you had remembered that phrase when reading this passage, perhaps Zacchaeus' salvation didn't come as much of a surprise despite the fact that he was rich. Because apparently here, God did the impossible. Now in this church... We generally subscribe to reform theology. And we see that concept as it plays out in relation to salvation in this passage. Because we see that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, and he made an effort to do so. But Jesus also wanted Zacchaeus. Ephesians 1.4, this is, or just as Ephesians 1.4 said, Zacchaeus was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that day that he climbed up into that sycamore tree was the day for his salvation. So the question is, does that mean that the rich young ruler earlier was not chosen? Well, I'm not sure, but that's the mystery of salvation. In fact, we see two mysteries at work here in this passage because we see... The mystery in who God chooses and how he does so and his timing. But we also see the mystery of the interaction 
of the free will of Zacchaeus? Because Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, he sought him out, and then he had to receive Jesus joyfully. But we also see God's election in the fact that he chose Zacchaeus and did the impossible of imparting salvation to a rich man. So that's an interesting concept, Alan, but why does it matter? It matters because of verse 10, because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It matters because Zacchaeus was lost. The crowd who, though were grumbling, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, they were correct in their assessment of Zacchaeus. He was, in fact, a sinner. But thankfully, that's exactly who Jesus came for. Because you and I are sinners. We are lost. Which means that we are in need of that same salvation that Zacchaeus needed. Have you received that salvation today? Jesus is calling you. Today, I know it. Because 2 Peter 3.9 says that it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is calling. Will you, like Zacchaeus, hurry and receive him joyfully? Jesus specifically called Zacchaeus to receive salvation. And Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Verse 8 tells us that he then goes on to give half of his goods to the poor and restore fourfold to anyone whom he cheated. Zacchaeus did what the rich young ruler could not do, namely, part with his wealth. Why was he able to do that? It was because he encountered the singular supremacy of Jesus. When Zacchaeus learned who Jesus was and how completely glorious he is, everything else in his life, including his wealth, paled in comparison. He no longer wanted it because he had Jesus and he was willing to do whatever he had to do in order to keep Jesus. Zacchaeus found that pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in a field that he was willing to forsake all for. Unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus wasn't searching for what he had to do in order to inherit eternal life. He was searching for the Savior himself. And when he had the Savior, he was able to do what the rich young ruler could not do. I don't know about you, But this part of the passage is both convicting and encouraging to me. It's convicting because it forces us to ask ourselves if our lives reflect the fact that Jesus is infinitely greater than everything else. Maybe they did when we were first Christians, but has that faded? Have we lost our first love at times? I remember... I was reflecting on that this past week. And I was thinking, back when I was younger, I would dream, you know, think about the future. And I found that my dreams often included things like radical giving for, for missions and, and service in the name of Jesus and evangelism and everything else was secondary. You know, job, all that stuff, secondary. But now I found that when I dream, they mainly consist of things like how to move up in the next position at work or the next income bracket, 
what can I do to my house and my life to make it more comfortable? Or how can I talk my wife into a Dodge Charger SRT? (laughs) Now, some of what has changed is the maturity that comes with responsibility as we grow. But if I'm honest, some of what's changed is a fading of that first love as I took my eyes off of Jesus and become focused on the things of this world. Paul, Philippians 3, says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Can we say that everything else is rubbish, literally crap, compared to knowing Jesus. If Jesus called you, called me, to sell everything that we have and move our family halfway around the world, would we do it because he's worth it? If Jesus called us to make some financial sacrifice so that we could give more to missions, would we do it because he's worth it? If Jesus called us to put ourselves out there and talk to our coworker about him, would we do it because he's worth it? If Jesus called you to alter your, your TV intake so that you can better pursue a life of holiness, would you do it because he's worth it? If Jesus called you to foster troubled children and adopt, would you do it because he's worth it? Zacchaeus thought so, and that is why his story is so convicting. But the story of Zacchaeus is also encouraging, because here we see a man do what Jesus says was practically impossible for the rich to do. And he didn't do it begrudgingly, he did it joyfully. So if Zacchaeus can do it, so can we, because what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus wants us to experience his glory and to to look full in his wonderful face. And whenever we pray for that, he is more than happy to answer our prayers. In fact, I pray that we all would find the singular supremacy of Jesus and that as we do, in the words of the hymn I partially quoted earlier, the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We could honestly end right there and be blessed this morning. But there is one more truth that God has for this church this morning, and that is to notice the seeking strategy of Jesus. We talked about the specific salvation, and we've talked about the singular supremacy, but we also see the seeking strategy. Now, in this story, like any typical story, there are protagonists and there are antagonists or villains. And generally, when we read a story, we associate with who? The protagonist, right? We don't see ourselves as the villain. But sometimes we should, because that's what our behaviors represent. Who is the villain of this story? Or villains? It's the crowd. Because they were the ones who were trying to keep Zacchaeus from Jesus, and Jesus from Zacchaeus. And they did that in two ways. First, 
They were so concerned with seeing Jesus for themselves that they did not accommodate one who was limited by something he couldn't control, his height, from seeing Jesus. But they also tried to keep Jesus from Zacchaeus because they didn't think that Zacchaeus was worthy of Jesus because he was a sinner. You say, hold up, Alan. I'm not the crowd, okay? I I I would never keep people from Jesus. I want people to come to Jesus. And I do believe that is true for every one of us here. But I also think that something else is often at work in our lives, and that is that we become so consumed at times with our own spiritual journey and the journeys of those in our inner circle that we completely forget to get out of the way and let those around us experience Jesus as well. What do I mean by that? So often, we are rushing to see Jesus for ourselves, whether it be through worship here at Sunday mornings, which, again, we should, or Bible studies, or small groups, which, again, we should, or are in our families, that we neglect to check in on our coworker whose mother is battling cancer, or invite our widower neighbor to dinner, or to take the kid who is lacking a father figure to a game. It's not that we intentionally do this, but we just get so consumed in our own church lives that we forget to look at those around us. Now, we are God's presence on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal directly through us. Again, not intentional, but sometimes it happens. And all those things are good. I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of those things. What I'm saying is, is that we should be like Jesus here because Jesus looked through the crowd and called Zacchaeus by name. Jesus strategically sought him out. And then he went to his house, even though the crowd again stood in the way saying, why are you going to this guy's house? He's a sinner. You know, they thought that the sinner should somehow become righteous before meeting the only one who can truly make us righteous. And sometimes we have that expectation for people that we talk to as well. So here's my question. Who around you is looking for Jesus? Will you strategically seek them out and come to them as they are so that they may come to know the amazing Savior that you know? Another question that actually Bruno was at our house visiting a couple weeks ago and was talking about our jobs and I mentioned that, you know, I work primarily from home. And he was like, oh, that's great. But that probably also means you don't have as much opportunity to share the gospel with people. And I was like, hmm, you're right. And that got me thinking, are we around lost people enough? There's a Jesus lover named Jim whom I greatly admire from a church down in Christiansburg where Ashley and I lived before moving up here. And Jim and his wife Linda were missionaries to Africa for decades. Then they moved back to Virginia and retired. And Jim noticed that in his retirement, he was not around lost people as much as he would like. So he joined a bowling league. Not because he liked bowling and certainly not because he was very good, but simply because he wanted to be around lost people more. That's strategic seeking. But the fact is, most of us don't have to join a bowling league. Rather, 
we just have to open our eyes again to those around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, the other parents on our kids' soccer teams. They are there. Again, just open our eyes. So as we wrap up our time this morning, I have two prayers. My first prayer is for those of you whom Jesus has called, but you have not yet received him joyfully. I pray that you would, and that you would encounter the singular supremacy of Jesus in his glory, and that as you do, everything else in life would fade away and pale in comparison compared to spending eternity with him. If you are ready to hurry and receive him joyfully today, please talk to me or another member of this church, and we'd be more than happy to bring Jesus to your house. My second prayer is for those of us who, like Zacchaeus, have received Jesus joyfully. My prayer is that we would remember our first love and that our lives would show the world how amazing and infinitely greater Jesus is. And I pray that we would strategically seek out the lost around us and go to them the way that Jesus went to Zacchaeus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we again come to you this morning, and Lord, we thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. We thank you for Dr. Luke and his faithfulness in writing it down. And, and Lord, we thank you for calling Zacchaeus. We thank you that he wanted you, but also that you wanted him. And thank you that he did receive you and that you did the impossible of giving him salvation. And Lord, we thank you that because you did that for him, you can do that for us. Lord, we thank you that you are calling us and that you want us to know you and to experience you for all of eternity. Lord, we pray that we would. Lord, remind us of our first love. Remind us of how amazing and how awesome you are. And Lord, that as we follow hard after you, everything else in this world would just not even compare. Lord, touch our lives, touch our hearts. Give us that love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.